Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I want to join Tori and Michaela in welcoming you to the chapel. So glad to be with you. If we've not gotten a chance to meet, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the sending director here at the chapel and also will be teaching uh, here at Segan uh, throughout this transition. And so if we have not met, please let me shake your hand. I'm going to be in the lobby after the service. Now, before we continue in our series in Romans, I want to take a moment to pause and pray for uh, the victims and everything that is happening in Turkey and Syria with the earthquake. Uh, Many of you are, I'm sure, are familiar with what's going on. Over 25,000 people have died so far. Countless more are still missing, homeless, affected, and this is going to be a long-term recovery. If you've been following your news feeds, you may have noticed that uh, it's kind of disappeared from much of our national coverage because so often what is urgent in our lives takes the place of the chaos going on in the world. Um, But as a church that sends and as a church that is desiring to be global Christians, this should be top of the fold, first thing in our minds. Uh, So allow me to, to pray Uh, for what is going on over there. Father, we are grateful that you are in control over all things. And God, we pray in the name of Jesus right now for the victims in Turkey and in Syria as a result of this earthquake. We pray for the rescue efforts that many would be found. We pray for the recovery efforts that the world would come in and Uh, and serve, and we pray for your church, though it is extremely small in those countries. We pray that you would give them all that they need to love and to serve and to weep with those who weep and have opportunities to share the gospel. Lord, would you use this for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a, uh, there's a guy that we got connected with, um, a neighbor of one of our members at LSU who's from Turkey, and he's going to be driving a truck down to Houston to the consulate to get some supplies over to Turkey. And so what we've chosen to provide as a church is diapers. So we are uh, hoping for 1,000 packs of diapers, 25,000 diapers to be able to, to send over. Uh, so throughout the course of the week, if you want to bring some, you can just drop them in the lobby. Uh, and Abram, our outreach coordinator, will come and grab them and make sure that they uh, get there. But continue to be in prayer. We're not probably going to hear a lot about it in our news coverage, um, but please continue to be in prayer for everything uh, that is going on over there. Like Tori said, we started a series in the book of Romans uh, last week, and I am so excited for what God is going to unveil through his word throughout this series. We are going to be in Romans chapter 5 through 8. Uh, we explained last week that the reason that we chose those verses in, or those chapters in particular is Paul, the guy who's writing this, which, by the way, just a little, little side note, the earthquake kind of epicenter was in where Antioch would be, the church that sent Paul out originally, so we can kind of tie that in together. Um, but Paul wrote this, and in chapters 5 through 8, he is laying out the results of what he calls justification. And again, justification is the concept that because of what Jesus has done, God looks at us 
through Jesus's record. And because of his death and resurrection, he declares that we are righteous in incredibly powerful and life-changing concept. And those results that we looked at last week that we will continue to look at through the book of Romans, they are immediate and certain for those that have given their life to Jesus. But they are not natural. They push against our logic. They push against our temptations. They push against our worldview. I introduced the concept of worldview last week. Many of you are familiar with it, but worldview are those things deep down in our core that make up what we perceive to be real. Not just what we believe, not just what we say we believe, but the things deep down within us that are real. And the reason that we introduced that and the reason I'm going to weave that through this entire Roman series is because we at the chapel and Paul here in Romans, we are not after behavior modification. We are after transformation. And that only happens at the worldview level. So to put it bluntly, I am not concerned with you looking like better Christians. I am concerned with the message of Jesus transforming who we are at the core. My prayer has been, as we're going through this series, that God would allow these truths to take our hands and our grip off of the shiny things in the world and place them firmly on Jesus. And that can't happen through my words. That can't happen through my pleading. That can only happen through the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and applying it to our hearts. And that has been my pleading before the Lord, that he would do that as a church, because I believe that if that begins to happen, even ever so slightly, we would look different. This city would look different, and this world would look different. And today, we're going to be looking at something else that I think is going to push against our worldview. We're going to be looking at sin. But not just sin in terms of the mistakes that we make and the bad things that we do. But as we'll see, sin is a reigning power in this world. Sin holds sway in this world apart from Jesus. But I think it's easy for us sometimes to talk about sin as the mistakes that we make because we can internalize it a little bit more and we can almost feel like we have control over the sins in our own heart. We think that we can make a difference in that battle on our own so often. But I want to reshape the way that we think about sin today through kind of how Paul does it, through a personification of sin as an overarching power that we are born into and that controls much of who we are apart from Jesus. Because when we look at the chaos in this world, when we look at the wars, when we look at earthquakes and natural disasters, when we look at hate and evil and every ism that is in this world and every worldview that pushes against God, that is the result of sin, but not just the accumulation of individual sins. 
That is sin reigning in this world. And what Paul is going to show us today is that through sin, death has come to this world and it is reigning. And the reason we're going to spend so much time talking about this and the reason why Paul unpacks this for us is because I do not think that we will fully understand the power of the gospel until at the core of who we are, at our worldview level, we understand what sin is doing in this world. Now, just a heads up, this text is dense. There is a lot of theology. And if you didn't grow up in the church, that word theology just means the study of God. There is a lot of theology in this text. And the the danger sometimes when we unpack these things is that we want our minds to increase. We want to learn more things and we can take pride in that. But my goal today is not to get us to do anything. My goal is to help us understand Something that if it drips into our worldview will cause rejoicing in the gospel. But I have been praying all week because, like I said, this is slightly a dense theological text. We can get lost in the grammar and the syntax and the sentence structure, which is actually where a lot of the theology in this text resides, but I'm going to do my best to not kind of dive deep into the details because my goal really is that as a result of understanding what sin has done, we would all the more rejoice. Like Paul said last week, that we would rejoice in the glory of of God. So last week we ended with a really big statement, right? Where Paul went through our peace with God and he says, therefore we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our reconciliation. And then he moves on into verse 12, which is where we're going to start today. And he looks to answer a couple of questions. He wants to answer how we are in this mess that we are in. So the two questions that Paul's going to answer today, how can one man, Adam, bring us under the reign of sin and death? How does that, how does that happen? And then he will answer, how can one man, Jesus, bring us peace with God? So that's where we're going. I'm going to read Romans 12 or 5, 12 through 19, and then we will circle back. So you can follow along on the screens or you can follow along in your Bibles. But in the NIV, it says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. 
The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. Any questions? This is Paul at his most conceptual, his most ethereal, his most logical. So much of how we understand this really does play into the sentence structure and the verb tense. And five of you would be really excited if we decided to dive into that. But I'm going to try my best to help us understand his argument. Again, not so that we increase our knowledge, but so that we increase our rejoicing. So here is what I want you to take away right from the beginning as we dive into uh, this argument. My hope is that as we see what sin has done in the world and how it came about, that when we see it and when we internalize it, we would rejoice all the more gladly at what Jesus has purchased for us. That is the whole goal as we go through this. Understanding all of this theology, cool, it's helpful. But if it does not produce rejoicing in what God has done, then I think it's pointless. So stick with me as we try to go through all of this. Because I think one of the things that we tend to do with sin is we'll say things like, well, Jesus... Jesus died for my sin when I prayed to receive him into my life, right? That's one of the things we say. Maybe our kids say that. And it's a beautiful truth. But I think it lacks the punch of Jesus died to wage cosmic war over the reigning power that holds sway in this world and over your heart, That's what's at stake in what we're talking about here. So Paul continues his argument that he left off in verse 11. But one of the things he does is he starts an argument and then kind of takes a six-verse break from his argument. Uh, he says, just as, but then he doesn't actually finish the just as with a so that until verse 18. Right? So verse 12, again, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And then he takes a break. He's like, I just said some stuff that could be very easily misunderstood, so I need to try to unpack this for my readers. So I'm going to do my best to try to unpack what he's talking about here. In one verse, Paul tells us how everything changed. Think about a few dominoes that are set up. Through Adam's act of sin, sin entered the world. First domino. When that domino fell, death came through that sin. And when that domino fell, 
death spread to everyone. In just a few words, he gives implications that matter to every man, woman, and child that has ever existed in this world. And then he gives the cause of that. He says, because all sinned. And if you're taking notes, one man, Adam, brought sin and death to us all. So the phrase that Paul is trying to make sure we understand is what he says right there at the end, because all sinned. Now, there are three options for what that could mean. And I want to go through them, not because I want this to feel like a seminary class, but because I think it's important in our understanding of the gospel to really understand what he's saying here. So the first thing that this could mean is that death came spread to all mankind because all people would eventually individually sin. That's the first thing that it could mean, right? And we know that that's true. We know that uh, a few verses or chapters earlier in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In a few weeks, we'll see Romans 6.23 that say the wages for sin is death, Right? So we do know that our individual sins have consequences. We know that our individual sins are what is being paid for. However, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. And the reason I can say that is the next couple of verses. So again, 13 and 14, he says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Now, follow me here. The reason we know this is not talking about individual sins is because there was a time period between Adam and Moses, uh, which if we track all of the timetables given in Genesis, is about 2,000 years. So for about 2,000 years from Adam, the first man, to Moses, the guy that led the people of Israel out of slavery, in those 2,000 years, people died. But God hadn't given the law yet. So they weren't actually breaking rules. And Paul says here that sin isn't counted when you don't break rules. Now, I could spend a long time unpacking what I just said, but that's for next week. All right, so be okay with coming back next week and finding out what the heck that actually means. But we know he's not talking about individual sins here because he just said that sin is counted when someone breaks a law. Adam broke a law. God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They broke a direct command from God. But the people between Adam and Moses didn't have that, but they still died. So that means that death is not coming as a result just of our individual sins. Somebody's taking a nap in here, which is okay. We're going to get there. We're going we're to tie it off. This is the, but this is important. Another option would be that he's talking about sin nature that we receive from Adam. That the reason that death spread to all people is because we've inherited a sin nature that would one day cause us invariably 
to have individual sins. And we know that that is also true. We'll see in Romans chapter 7 that sin actually resides in you. Sin is waging war on your heart. So everyone is born into a sin nature. You sin because you're a sinner, not the other way around. If I sneeze, that doesn't mean I have the cold. If I have a cold, I will sneeze. We enter this world as a sinner. So we know that we do have a sin nature, but that's also not what Paul is talking about. Because if that sin nature would then lead to individual sins, then we have our same argument that for 2,000 years, people still died. So that leaves us with a third option. And this is going to push against every Western, when I say Western, I mean American, European, Canadian, just the way we tend to think. This is going to push against every Western ideology and worldview that we have grown up with. What Paul is saying here is that when Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam sinned, you sinned. You are already guilty as a result of Adam's sin. You're not guilty because one day you will do what Adam did. We enter this world as sinners because in Adam, as a representative of mankind, mankind sins. This is the concept that if you grew up in the church that is known as original sin. The act of one man brought sin and death and death spread to everyone. And there is no other option. Now, if you're paying attention, and if you grew up in America, the question that should be rising within you is, is that fair? Is that fair? So, Steve, you're saying that Paul is telling me that even though I haven't done anything yet, I come in guilty. How can one man cause that much damage? Is it fair? According to a Western worldview, that is the definition of not being fair. In a Western worldview, good and bad reside within you, and good is being the best version of yourself. In a Western worldview, good does not come externally. Bad does not come externally. We are told to be the best version of ourselves. We are individuals. We are masters of our fate. So the real question that I would love for us to wrestle with today and through the rest of this series is, is this. Will we allow our cultural worldview to shape how we read Scripture, or will we allow Scripture to shape our worldview? I want to let that one sit for a minute. Let 
Will we allow our cultural worldview to shape the way we read Scripture? Or will we allow Scripture to shape our worldview? Will we allow God's truth to invade our thinking? Because of what we've grown up with, this doesn't actually make sense. Because of the one act of Adam that he did in deliberately disobeying God, sin and death entered the world and spread to everyone. Now, as we let that sit, a couple of things to note. Each of these three things could be their own sermon, but I think, uh, I think they're important. We're talking about sin entering the world, right? It's not evil in general because the serpent was already in the garden, right? Satan was already here. Uh, so it's not just evil. We're talking about sin that comes to all people. You also might be wondering, why am I saying that it's Adam's fault instead of Eve's? Eve ate the fruit first. Well, Adam, as a representative of mankind, was given this command before Eve was even created. And the scriptures say that he was standing right next to her when she ate it. He could have done something about that. But as a representative of mankind, it is assigned to Adam. This also goes to the historicity of Adam and Eve. It's popular today to think that that was just a myth and a lot of the Old Testament stories are just a myth that's out there. But what Paul is telling us is if this didn't happen, then what he is about to tell us that happened with Jesus also would be implausible. So there is so much riding on these verses. But back to this idea of original sin. I don't know how that concept strikes you. And I don't know if you spent that much time thinking about sin in this way. So often, like I said, we think about sin, we talk about sin through the lens of the mistakes that I make, which we all, of course, do. But allow me to continue to follow Paul's argument to find out why this is so significant. Because at the end of verse 14, which we read before, he said that Adam was a type or a pattern of the one to come, talking about Jesus. So if we follow his argument, then we need to find out what all Adam did so that we can find out why it's significant that Jesus did what he did. So let me read again verse 15 through 17. It says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision and grace of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul ended 14 saying that Adam is a type, a pattern of the one to come, but then he just gave us a bunch of words saying how Jesus and Adam are not the same. So if you're taking notes, Jesus and Adam contrasted. What is different about the one act of the one man, Adam, and the one act of the one man, Jesus? Well, there's four significant things that I'm going to just go through quickly. The first is that the nature 
of their act was different. What Adam and Jesus did was different. The reason that all of this happened in the first place is because Adam deliberately disobeyed a command from God. And it's really easy for us to think, man, I would have done it. I would have done it differently. I wouldn't have done that. Come on, Adam. But not only would we have done the same thing, but we can't blame him because in him we are guilty. So that's what Adam did. He deliberately disobeyed, but Jesus fulfilled and obeyed the law of God perfectly in our place. We're going to look at over the next coming weeks that the law that God has given is actually good. We talk about it being bad so often because nobody could ever fully follow it. But Jesus fully fulfilled it. The effect was also different. Adam's brought condemnation. Jesus's brought justification. The result of their acts were different. And notice what or who is reigning. Gosh, I wish we had so much time to unpack all of these things. But he says, death was reigning in Adam. But through Jesus, we reign with Christ. It's not that death reigned and then life reigned. It's that death reigned and now we get to reign with Christ. The power of the gospel is so significant. So the nature was different. The effect was different and the motive was different. Adam's act was one of self-will and self-assertion. Jesus' act was one of self-sacrifice. That he came to bear the weight and the penalty. But I think the biggest difference is that it was different in scope. Twice in verse 15 and verse 17, Paul says, how much more? It's not just that when Jesus or when Adam sinned that like humanity went to negative 10. And when Jesus died that he added 10 back and now we're at neutral again. Right? That's not what's going on here. It is so much more that Jesus' act of obedience revolutionizes the human race to be so much better than it would have been apart from him. All right, the five of you in the room that are really enjoying all the logic, stick with me. Everyone else, time to come back in because I want to tie this together, right? I want to show us why this is so significant. And if you have checked out the only thing that I want you to hear and take away is this next sentence that I'm going to say. You ready? Because sin and death came through one man, righteousness, provision, and grace also come through one man. That's why this is significant. The only way that this analogy of one man having sin come in and one man having righteousness come in, the only way this makes sense is if we inherited our sin from Adam, our death from Adam, so that we can inherit our 
righteousness from Jesus. Because track with me here, if it was up to us to be the only ones that earned our sin and death through our mistakes, then it would logically proceed that then we are the ones that can fix the problem. And deep down in our worldview, I think that's what we're trying to do. But if we can fully internalize that we came into this world under the reign of sin, then maybe we can begin to believe that there is nothing that we could add to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That it is fully sufficient for everything that you have ever done, that has ever been done to you, that has ever been done in this world, and everything that you will one day do. Doesn't mean that we aren't responsible for our sin. Doesn't mean that there are not crazy consequences for our sin, but we've got three more chapters to unpack that. And I think this is where our worldview really begins to come into conflict with the gospel. First of all, we really want to push against the idea that we inherit our sin from the outside. Because our culture is in the business of trying to convince us that your greatest ambition in this world should be to maximize your potential, to live your truth, to not let anyone tell you who to be and what to do. That good and bad come from within. Good is being who you really are. Bad is conforming to someone else. So this idea that we inherit this from the outside, man, we, we push against it. And because of that, we might say that we believe that Jesus' death was sufficient, but at the core, I don't know if we really believe that. And I'm not going to put that on you. Let's just talk about me. Because so often when I know I've had a day that I've sinned a little bit more than normal, I believe in my core that that day God loves me less. Sometimes I think that if I would have read my Bible more that day, I would have sinned less. Sometimes I think that if I just would have prayed going into that situation, then I would be like so much closer to God and he would give me the love that I need to combat that sin that is coming. I would imagine that some of you can relate to this. And what that means is at the worldview level, we are trying to justify ourselves. We are trying to make ourselves feel better about our relationship with Jesus by the works that we do, even the religious works that we do. And church, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not changing our behavior. The gospel is not being God's ally so that he needs us because of the things that we do. The gospel is that we were under the reign of terror, of sin and death, and Jesus waged a cosmic war to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And as that happens, our behavior will change but not because we modify our behavior, but because deep down we're being transformed. And then we live out of that. So church, what would it mean if we actually believed at a worldview level 
what Paul says here in verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How would we begin to live if we believe deep down that we actually received these things from the one man, Jesus? He came to set back to be right what Adam wrecked. What if we actually believed, actually saw as real deep down in our core, that because of Jesus, we're not just forgiven from our mistakes, but we are transferred from the reigning power of sin and death to be able to reign with Christ. Sin and death, when you entered this world, was the master of your soul. And through Jesus, he has made a way to reign in life with him. What if we received it? I've been asking this question myself all week. What if I received that? What if at the core of who I was, that was real? Maybe some of you in this room haven't decided to trust in Jesus yet. Maybe you think that you haven't sinned that bad. You haven't killed anyone that you contribute to society. Heck, you're in church this morning. Maybe you think that you don't really need to receive from Jesus. And, and if that's you, then my hope is that this verse would do the same thing within you. When you were born, you received entrance into this world, into the domain of sin and death. And in Jesus, he has offered you entrance into the kingdom of his beloved son. And all it takes is to receive to receive that his death really was sufficient for you, to receive that his resurrection really does transfer you to reign in life, to give you the abundant provision of grace. And I am already late, but I've got one more point. So we're going to go quick. We talked about all the ways that Jesus and Adam are different, but there's one that they are similar. So if you're taking notes, Jesus and Adam compared. Verse 18 and 19 again. Consequently, so he's picking back up on what he started in verse 12, which was a lot of words ago. But consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Because... In what Adam did, there was a global consequence. There needed to be a similarly global consequence through what Jesus has done through another man, through Jesus. Sin and death spread to the whole world. And now righteousness is available to the whole world. Just as through Adam's act, the many were made sinners, that's everyone, 
so also through Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice the tense difference. Everyone comes in under the same reign of sin and death, but it is only through faith in Jesus that we enter the reign in life with Jesus. There are two kinds of humanity. Everyone enters life because of our association, our family resemblance with Adam. Everyone enters life under the reign of sin and death. But Jesus has made a way through his death for us to enter a new family. Through Jesus, we can transfer kingdoms. Through Jesus, we can transfer families. Through Jesus, we can transfer humanities. That is the power of the gospel. Not just to cover our mistakes, though praise the Lord that that happens. Not just to make us better people, which will probably happen as our worldview is changed, but to wage a cosmic battle that will result in the victory of King Jesus. That is what is coming. That is why we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And now, we wait. Rejoicing that we have been given peace with God. And as we wait for the culmination of that battle, and while we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we continue to fight for a proper worldview. To set our minds on what is true. Which is why Paul will say in chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world's worldview, but be transformed, not by changing your behavior, but by the renewing of your mind. And the way to do that is to submit your thoughts and your beliefs and your worldview under the word of God. And I'm so grateful that we get a chance to continue to go through this letter that Paul has given us to the Romans. And my prayer for you and for me will be that we would continue to have our minds conformed to the truth of who he is so that we can rejoice. That's where we started and that's where I end. All of this is not so that we can understand some deep truths. It is so that we can rejoice. Let me pray for us. God, we are so grateful for Jesus. How would you lift our eyes to your throne of grace that we may see, that we may believe, that we may be transformed, that yes, we are covered in your blood, that yes, we are forgiven of our sins, that yes, we are saved from the wrath of God in Jesus. But more than that, you have achieved victory over the kingdom of sin and death, and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son that we may reign with you in life. And God, I just beg that my heart would believe that and that you would transform this, your church. Free us from all of the the worldviews we've inherited from this world and conform us into your image through the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. 
thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.